Welcome to my podcast, Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life. Conversations with ordinary people leading extraordinary lives. If this is your first time listening, I want to thank you so much for stopping in. My guest today is Lavinia Malioko. Enthralled with movement, music, and the human body from an early age, Lavinia embarked on a career as a professional ballerina only to be derailed by illness at age 18, diagnosed with Crohn's disease. For decades, she struggled with debilitating symptoms, underwent two surgeries, and was given drugs and treatments which created a roller coaster of remission and illness. In 1990, she discovered the work of Joseph Pilates. With the help of her ballet teacher and Pilates therapist, she made a full comeback to the stage. In 2004, she met an extraordinary teacher of Qigong, Tai Chi, and Kung Fu. After practicing Qigong for only two months, she stopped taking drugs for Crohn's and hasn't had a recurrence since. Lavinia was also diagnosed with breast cancer in 2014, a journey which she will surely share with us. Some of the questions we will explore. How, when diminished by illness, does, does one continue to fully express one's essence in the world? What does it mean, illness, if anything? How is our connection to others and the divine shaped by illness? And finally, how do we continue to live in hope with the attendant grief and consciousness of our fragility? Today, Lavinia teaches dancers and non-dancers at her studio, Equipoise Enlightened Exercise in Portland, Oregon. Hi, Lavinia. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. Hi, Janine. It's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this. It's been so long since we've talked. And full disclosure, Lavinia was my Pilates teacher for many years. And I have to say, Pilates is one of the very few exercises that I really enjoy. (laughs) That's great. You know, um, a lot has changed since we last worked together, Janine. I have um, really come down a road that I've been on for, for many years, and now my work is mostly somatically driven. So before imposing yet another system of exercise on people, I find that what I need to do is look and look and see what's there in their bodies that's obstructing good flow of movement. And first, we have to figure out what's going on and what's impeding it. So I'm working very differently these days. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. So can you give us an example of how you might work with someone who, um, I I don't know, maybe has an injury or? Sure. I have a client, uh, in fact, a gentleman who uh, has a shoulder injury from judo. And he came in and he complained to me that his posture is terrible. And he had all of these ideas about his body and how it should be working. And, um, you know, the first thing I do, you know, I'm always big on educating about anatomy, mm-hmm. is I said, well, you know, I take an injury history and I said, gosh, well, your poor shoulder has been through the ringer. I said, and, you know, I'm not going to start giving you exercises to make your shoulders roll back because in actual fact, what was happening was that his chest was hyperextended forward and that his shoulders were tight, which was pulling the scapula forward. But mm. if you hyperextend the chest, the shoulders are supposed to roll back. Mm-hmm. So it, his body was getting very confused signals. And we had to, the first thing we had to do was actually 
get him in a quiet space so he could feel and understand the what his body was doing in that moment and and what his habit pattern is mm-hmm. and then to find ways to release the tightness in the shoulder which we did through some washa some stretching and some manipulation and then once he was actually able to lift his arm up which he couldn't do before at that point we can start to talk about some exercises <clears throat> excuse me but until you untangle the the oh the um, imprints of injury and what the body has done to compensate, it's pretty silly to start to impose anything on top of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, does that make sense? Yes, it does. And that sounds like a very enlightened way to approach the subject. And <laughs> I know that you've been through a lot uh, yeah. to get to this place where you are taking a much more expanded, and I would call it a much higher uh, a view of, of the, the people that you're working with. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your story and how you've, how you've gotten to this place? Cause you've, you've had quite a journey. Well, um, you know, I fell in love with ballet because it's beautiful and, and I fell in love with that beauty and I had something in me, a desire in my body, heart, mind to, work towards making my body um, work within that form, right? I mean, uh, ballet is a classical art. Why? Because it, it has a shape that it inhabits, just like classical architecture looks a certain way and classical music has a certain form. Mm-hmm. So um, these forms, there's nothing wrong with them. They're, they're expressions of beauty. And so I fell in love with this and began to work to make my body speak that language. And, you know, unfortunately, um, in that, you know, ballet is changing a lot. But back then, you know, talking the late 60s, early 70s, when I started, I mean, it was still being taught much like it had been taught for a couple of hundred years. There was not a lot of enlightened anything about it. Mm-hmm. It was sheer rote and repetition, and um, often coupled with a great deal of negativity and forced and forced discipline and um, violence. I Mm. mean, in the sense that teachers would literally take your body and move it, whether it wanted to go there or not. And there was very little understanding of of anatomy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you're young and, and if you're lucky to be fairly pliable and you have a passion for it, you sort of surrender to this process and, and you acquire a, a technique and it works for a while uh, but then it will eventually stop working because no body can submit to that kind of rigor without paying a price mm-hmm. and this is where you know yeah the Crohn's disease sucked it was it was horrible and I had a very um, aggressive and virulent type and I don't want to go into the whole psychology of it because it's not just a psychological disease it, it is an actual disease process of the immune system. And at the time I was living in the Midwest. So uh, my exposure to alternative medicine was like, eh, you know, and my dad was a doctor. So, Uh. but I'll tell you what the gift was. And the gift happened when I finally found a compassionate doctor, even within the Western system, I finally had surgery that 
saved me because at that point, even at that point, I had started to try to, to work with diets and this and that, but the damage to my intestine was so bad and the perforations, there were perforations and, and occlusions that no diet was going to fix at that point. It was mm-hmm. just too late. Mm-hmm. So um, when I came out of that experience, uh, I when I, I started Pilates, I was already an adult. I was 27 years old. When my doctor said, Lavinia, you're a dancer, you have to dance. And I said to him, George, this is when dancers hang up their shoes. He said, no. <laughs> He said, you have to dance. And I went into a ballet studio. I did one grand plié, and I couldn't get up off the floor. I was so debilitated. Oh, my goodness. That must have been depressing. It was, but but the gift was that I had no more expectations. I was just happy to be alive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a very um, fresh place to start. And so I had the memory, I knew technique, I had trained in the top schools, and I remembered it, but my body was different. And so I now had to approach putting myself back together from a completely different perspective. I was an adult, mm-hmm. and not a child. And I also was passionate about anatomy and my Pilates teacher had been a former dancer. And so all these threads started to come together. And I began to inhabit my body in a different way. Mm-hmm. And it was more conscious. Mm-hmm. It was, um, well, it was more, it was different. And yet I was still at the very beginning of the journey, because let me say that somatics were, you know, I was just starting to be exposed through some modern dance teachers. And it was a very uh, foreign concept that I was actually supposed to listen to my body <laughs> rather than try to dominate it with my mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you're you're taking a, a, a whole different perspective on on your body and how it relates to movement. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened next? Well, um, I. <laughs> I can go into this story. It was fortuitous. I began, as I started to get back in shape, life simply started flowing into the open spaces. And I was invited to dance here and there, and I picked up little parts, and I I got great advice. One teacher said to me, take any job to be on stage, anything, do anything to get on a stage. And I did. And I, I took voice lessons. I did musical theater. I auditioned everywhere. I mean, I was having a blast and expecting nothing, which I keep saying is the best place to be in because, you know, that's when life kind of gives you the gift. Mm-hmm. And, um, what happened was connecting back with the dance world. I was hanging out with some friends and there was a guest choreographer from New York and he happened to be the ballet master at the Metropolitan Opera. And we struck up a friendship. This was before email. And when he <laughs> left, um, we started writing back and forth. We were both married to other people. And yet, you know, was, there was a bit of a flirtation there. And he said, why don't you come to New York? I'll get you tickets to the opera and you can come take company class. And and I thought, oh, my God, New York. You know, I had been at School of American Ballet and I had all these ghosts and I was actually terrified to go. Hmm. I was, I was terrified because 
I mean, I was afraid I, I could never measure up, you know. And so um, simultaneously, I was writing for the um, local paper in Cincinnati. And my editor, who often received um, books and things from authors, uh, handed me a book about runes and said, here, do you want this? And so I started working with runes because I was always interested in things like tarot and divination. Mm-hmm. And so I asked the runes, you know, should I go to New York? And I got the rune Degas breakthrough. And I thought, oh, my God. <gasps> and I thought, no, 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 I'm scared. I'm scared. And a few weeks later, I said, you know, I, I, pull, I went again and I said, should I go to New York? And I got the rune for birth, new beginnings. And I was like, oh, no, 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 I can't. I can't. Finally, <laughs> wow. my husband was like, would you just go to New York? <laughs> and I, the last rune I drew was the blank rune which was pretty much the, you know, take the leap of faith. Mm -hmm. So I went to New York. I had arranged to stay with some dancer friends up in um, Spanish Harlem. And um, so I went to the opera and the next morning I showed up at the Met Opera stage door and my friend Marcus let me in and he said, you have to come meet the ballet mistress. And he introduced me to her and basically she's looking me up and down and she turned (laughs) to Marcus and she said, you know, Marcus, we've had a lot of injuries this year and we really need to hire another dancer. And she said to me, would you like to audition for us today? Oh my goodness. And you know, my jaw just about fell on the floor and I said, well, okay, sure. And so my comp, I took company class as an audition. Mm-hmm. And at the end of class, she invited me into her office and there was a contract on the desk. Oh my. And she said, I hate to rush you, but we have rehearsal in 20 minutes and I really need you in Maida. <laughs> Goodness. And I said, it's like a movie. And I, <laughs> and I called my husband and I said, you're never going to believe what's happened. And he said, they offered you a job. And I said, yes. He said, I knew it. You know, he was a musician. So he, he had a feeling for these things. And so um, there ensued six uh, of the happiest years of my life, really a gift from um, a gift from the cosmos, because what had been taken away uh, came back to me, and um, I was in a position to truly and deeply appreciate it. Wow. And it was a great company to be in. That is remarkable. After all you had been through, and <laughs> you know, just yeah. just having the the guts, the faith to to take that step is something that <laughs> that we can all be inspired by. Oh, I hope so. Because, you know, it, you just have to, but, you know, you can't expect anything. You just right. have to get out there and be thankful for every little moment that comes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you were there for six years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, then- and yes, well, eventually our contract started going to hell in a handbasket. And my marriage also was not doing well. Uh, you can imagine, you know, we were apart a lot. So um, I, um, a number of things happened. I auditioned for Phantom of the Opera. I got in, but I wasn't sure which company they would plug me into. Mm-hmm. I met an artist who was leaving New York and coming to Portland. And I realized that I didn't want to lead a double life. So I, I got a divorce and I ended up um, coming to Portland, Oregon uh, waiting to hear what company I was going to be plugged in and I'm into. And I was 35 at the time when I came to Portland, I started taking classes in Oregon ballet theater. And, you know, there again, serendipity followed me 
in the shape of Marina Stavitskaya, one of our teachers at the Met Opera. She happened to be guest teaching there. And the head of the school, who was her friend, had just invited me to, to take some classes. And when Marina walked in and saw me, she says, what are you doing here? <laughs> and when, when Haide saw that we knew each other and then she got a little low down from Marina, you know, I was a really hard worker. And I think that's what Marina told her. Um, I got hired at OBT um, this time to teach. And I learned a huge amount being there and teaching with Haide Gutierrez, who is an extraordinary ballet teacher. And I began to really consider aspects of how to teach ballet in a way that was more efficient. Mm -hmm. And I was still on my own personal journey. So I, I had started doing yoga and I began to unravel a lot of things in my body, um, a lot of tightnesses, a lot of you know, chronic injuries that I'd had. And, um, but, you know, I, I, I haven't even told you that, you know, all along the way too, I was in doing a spiritual in, inquiry and I was deeply, um, in, in the midst of the deepest time of illness with the Crohn's, I ran into some, uh, literature, some books that were written by a guy named Yogi Ramacharaka who had happened to be a Westerner who had studied in India many years in the early part of the 20th century and wrote a series of books. And it was my first exposure to the yoga of pranayama, uh, mm -hmm. breath work. Mm -hmm. And um, when I began reading these books, it was like they spoke to my or a part of me that had always sensed that there were invisible there were things that we could not perceive with our five senses, but which, however, were absolutely real. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, I'm just reading now um, a book called Radical Wholeness with, by Philip Shepard, which I highly recommend, mm -hmm. which talks about the fact that in, the, in other um, cultures, they don't say that we have just five senses. They incorporate other things. For example, in the Hindu culture, the mind is a sense organ. The mm -hmm. mind is of perception. So if we only talk about our five senses, we're actually limiting ourselves. We can perceive things like energy and we can perceive our connection to things. But, but we may not actually see them with our five senses, but there, it doesn't mean that it's not real. And I think that we have, um, you know, I was suffering from huge... Uh, sort of Western psycho mm, bias about mm -hmm. psychoscientific bias that if you couldn't touch it, feel it, weigh it, compare it, it wasn't real. Mm. And, um, you know, one of the crucial things about my journey with my body and health and working with people was the realization that there are things that are beyond our immediate perception but which are nevertheless wholly real and wholly perceivable. Mm -hmm. It's just that we have to open ourselves to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And just, just perceiving or l limiting yourself. Well, there I go. I was going to say it's very limiting to just, just have the five senses that you're right. focusing with. Right. So, right. so how did that inform then your, uh, your health? Mm. Ah, so 
So my first, um, I, there were two incidences um, that I had before coming to Oregon. One where um, in just doing these simple breathing exercises, I was able to sleep for an entire night through the whole night without pain and without running to the bathroom. And I hadn't been able to do that in 10 years. So that got my attention. I was like, whoa, this is powerful. Mm -hmm. And another um, incident, which seems completely silly, but it made another huge impression on me was that um, I was teaching one summer in Cincinnati. It was very hot, very humid. One of those mornings, you know, where you get up and it's already, you're sweating, you mm. know, at, at eight in the morning. God. And I, <clears throat> I was, yeah, <laughs> I was the first one to arrive at this old, um, old building with, that we had classes in called the dance hall. And it was this big old brick building with this iron door in a wooden frame. <laughs> and, um, and I had the keys and I, and I, you know, unlocked the door and I pulled on it and the door would not budge. It was stuck. And I pulled and pulled. Meantime, my students were arriving, and I said, "I can't get this door open. It's it's completely wedged into this frame." And then a couple of students who were bigger than I am and yanked on the door with all their might. The door would not budge. And so I, out of just complete, in a moment of complete, like, what the hell am I going to do? I'm supposed to teach a class. I put my cheek against the door, and and I just. I said, I'm just going to try this, you know, and my students were going, what are you doing? And I said, I, I just, I don't know. I just, let me try this. And I rested my cheek against the door. I closed my eyes. I breathed. I imagined the wood shrinking back away from the door. And I asked the door with great sort of humility and open hearted, would you please open? And I put my hand on the knob and I pulled it and it opened <laughs> Awesome. I love that story. And my students looked at me and they went, what did you do? I said, I asked the door to open. That was it. I, because that's what I did. I just asked, you know. And so these things, as trivial as they seem, really began to, um, like I said, they grabbed my attention. Mm-hmm. They seeped right in. And mm-hmm. I began to wonder, to what extent are we able to influence gross physical material. I say gross, not as in gross, disgusting, but gross as in a more uh, coarse, um, heavier form of reality, material Mm -hmm. reality. How is it that we can influence it sometimes and not other times simply by using our mind, Mm -hmm. our intention, our energy, our desire, our will? You know, obviously, you can't, it is influenceable, right? Absolutely. I mean, clear to me. But how was it that I couldn't do it all the time at will? You know, Mm -hmm. there was the rub. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If I may share a story. Recently with this work that, and I've mentioned before with David Flowers, with turning on um, or activating the immune system with the brain, Mm -hmm. it got me to thinking that I remember in nursing school uh, reading a case study of a multiple personality disorder. Mm-hmm. And and the person had only one personality with diabetes. Wow. Now, how wow. do you do that? I mean, if you really, right. really think about it. And so I went online the other day and I thought, I want to see if I can find that again. And I found that one. And I also found a couple of others where uh, only one personality had an allergy. 
Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And I, I know. And I think I read that if it was an allergy to orange juice mm. and it was a male and while he was drinking orange juice, if he changed personalities, he would become allergic to it. Mm. Amazing. Now yet, it's the same body. Yeah. Right? Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. Which I mean, that's exactly it. It, 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 it seems like it's the same body, but it's not because there is some mm. essential energetic complete difference. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one last one. There was a woman who had three personalities. Uh, one was five, one was 17, and one was 35. And her vision, her eyesight was completely different for all three of those personalities. I love these stories. I, I love hearing this because it makes me feel like we, we are, you know, we barely scratched the surface of our understanding of what what this is all about and what's possible and and what's really going on here mm -hmm. so if you think of uh, of the beliefs that we mm -hmm. all have you know how do those beliefs inform how our body functions you know our thoughts how do our thoughts inform how our body functions absolutely and and also you know how split are we because we live in a culture that has divided us between a mind up here and a body down there, as if intelligence mm. doesn't reside in every cell in our body, it, it, which it right. does. And it's my understanding that the mind is not just in the brain, but it's also in our gut. The mind is actually, according, so according to the teaching that I um, later um, began to take in and take on uh, with a teacher here in Portland, Shambhavi uh, Saraswati, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. universe is made of consciousness and energy. Everything mm -hmm. from your toaster to us <laughs> is continually evolving. And it's just that the toaster is evolving at a very slow speed and other people <laughs> are evolving at faster speed. But the fact is we're made of the same thing, consciousness and energy, which means that intelligence is ubiquitous. We are we are talking about an intelligent environment that we're swimming in, and we are not separate from it. We're a part of it. And I think, Janine, that a lot of illness comes from the fact that we, especially here in the United States, we have this idea of being rugged individuals and you know independent, but we're we're not. We're interdependent. Mm -hmm. And we uh, are acting as if we are separate. And that, talk about a schizoid um, personality. Talk about a schism. No wonder our bodies are breaking down. So you're saying that the, the sense of separateness, if I'm hearing yes. you correctly, the sense of separateness that we generally, most people, mm -hmm. tend to carry with them is contributing to... Uh, the body breaking. Yeah, down. it's it's literally contributing to our unease and disease. Mm -hmm. So, what do we do? Well, I think what what, what have you I, done? I'll tell you what I do or what I'm doing, and it's you know um, it's ongoing and it's a process. I had another breakthrough. Um, for, I was trying a an all raw diet for a while. Uh, persuaded by a, a friend that I was dating, and uh, 
and it was interesting. I was doing it for a while, but then I finally just, I just so needed some, you know, steak and polenta and I decided that's it. I'm going to take myself out. Then I went to dinner. I had this delicious meal. I went to bed and within a couple of hours, I woke up so sick. I, Oh my goodness. I didn't know if I, which end it was going to come out of. And I was just moaning in pain. I mean, it's like my body just rebelled. And I thought I started beating myself up. Oh, you silly girl. Why did you go and eat this steak? And in the midst of all, I mean, oh, my God, I have to go to the bathroom. I didn't know, you know, which end. Finally, I thought to myself, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Lavinia, what have you been reading? What have you been studying? What have you been learning? It is time to put the rubber to the road and start practicing. So I knew in the midst of this misery that the one thing that I had to do was stop resisting it. So Mm -hmm. I thought to myself, wow, I feel like shit. Wow. What's that like? And, you know, I gave myself permission that if I needed to vomit in bed, I was, I was going to clean the sheets the next day. So, you know, just do what you just relax with it. Don't resist it and just ride it out. See what happens. And so I began to breathe and really, really try to surrender. Now, you know, I will tell you, <laughs> this is not easy <laughs> when your stomach <laughs> is in knots and you think you're just going to emit from both ends. But I did my best. And, and this was, you know, I about two in the morning. All of a sudden, it was like someone took the dial to the volume of my thoughts and turned it way down. It was like suddenly my mind went completely quiet. And the last, the last little phrase that I, that I heard in my head was energy perceiving energy. And I looked around and my room was vibrating. I mean, I could see mm. the molecules it was like all I saw was this sort of, because it was dark, but it was some, somewhat light. And everything was shimmering. And it was amazing. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't there anymore. I mean, I was there in my, mm-hmm. but, but all it was, was a consciousness. And as I, as my, this consciousness looked at Lavinia's hand and said, it, again, there was this moment of thinking my hand makes about as much sense as saying my ocean or my tree. It's not mine. It's just energy. And I'm not quite sure mm-hmm. how long that state lasted, but it, it was actually of a fair duration. And eventually, as, um, as the room sort of settled down and became ordinary again, I realized I wasn't sick anymore. Mm-hmm. I felt great. That is incredible. I just went back to sleep and I thought, wow, you know, just wow. Mm-hmm. That is incredible. So, you know, I mean, on, on the other hand, you know, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, um, it was a shock. I was outraged. I was angry. Mm. I was resentful. I felt that I didn't deserve it as if anybody does. Right. And mm-hmm. I went through mm-hmm. quite a quite a thing. And my um, meditation teacher, Shambhavi, said to me, Vinya, great yogis die of cancer. Who the hell are you? And I went, <laughs> whoa. Right. Okay. And I realized, I mean, one of the gifts of that experience was being with my partner, Erwin, who 
we had known each other for many years when we were friends and we had just gotten together and then bam, I got diagnosed with cancer, which seemed a really sucky thing to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in the beginning, it's like you, you, (laughs) I mean, we are very fortunate to have the care that we have here, but it's, you know, the minute you get a diagnosis, it's like getting onto a ride at an amusement park. It's you're on a ride and they're taking you here and you're going to get the CAT scan and then the PET scan and then the this scan and you're you're just going down that track. And, you know, every scan there's that, oh, my God, has it spread? Oh, my God. You know, and in the midst of all that, Erwin and I tried to get away one weekend to the beach and we get a call on a Friday afternoon that they thought they saw a shadow on my heart and my liver. And I thought, Mm. I'm going to die. I am going to die. And it was just, I mean, my heart was beating a mile a minute. And But over the course of those three days, which were agonizing, it was horrible that they called me on a Friday, this one doctor. But anyway, I realized. Yes, could have waited till could Monday. Could have waited till Monday. But this is what it did. I realized even through the weekend at the beach, I thought, well, I'm not dead yet. The sun is shining. I'm here. I'm here with Erwin. Wow, maybe I can actually relax and be happy even with all of this going on. And that mm-hmm. was pretty profound realization too. Um, and fortunately, the test was, it was a shadow. And fortunately, it was a, there was no metastasis. I was simply in stage one, a tiny tumor, and things went on as they did. Uh, I got chemo. That was another interesting thing because, you know, um, mm. a lot of people, a lot of people came out of the woodwork on Facebook and were writing to me telling me that I shouldn't do chemo. But I had done a fair amount of research and this was triple negative cancer. And, and I and simultaneously, a friend of mine from my meditation community, her sister had had exactly that same kind of cancer and she was dying. It had metastasis. Mm-hmm. She was younger than I. And I thought, I am not, I'm not going to fool with this. This, I am going to do the most thorough, radical thing to, to take care of this. And so you asked me, you know, what else do we do in terms of working with the energetic aspect of it? And I'm really grateful to my teacher for this. But I, before every chemo session, I made an offering at my ancestral altar. And I said to my ancestors, I, if this will help clear any ancestral karma, any energies, then take it. I'm doing this not just for me. I'm doing it for you and all of my ancestors. And it gave me a good feeling going in because I felt like, mm-hmm. you know, even, even if someone listening to this thinks that's, oh, that sounds like bullshit. But hey, it made me feel better. I was doing it not just for me. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, fortunately, here I am, knock on wood. Um, getting to my fourth year and so far so good is all I'll say you know mm-hmm. well you know I think we've we've made a a very strong argument for the mind uh influencing our physicality and and our emotions and if that made you feel better mm. if that gave you a much more positive sense of what you were doing because chemo can be extraordinarily damaging. 
And, you know, it doesn't just kill off the right. bad. Right. You know, well, I was aware. The bad things. Yeah. yeah. And so I think you were, you were very lucky because you've been taking very good care of yourself. You're physically fit. Um, you know, you had a lot going for you to be able to, um, get through the chemo without it, uh, you know, really damaging. Yeah. My, my oncologist said the same thing. He looked at me and kind of laughed and said, oh, you're just sailing through this. And I said, oh yeah, easy for you to say, but I think Mm -hmm. he was right. And I think, you know, staying hydrated and doing a lot of juices during the process and, um, my partner, Erwin, making these amazing soups and bone broths and this. I mean, I was really very, very conscious of, um, of taking care of myself. And, and people jumped in and brought me juices and things and were wonderful and sat with me. And I did mantra, you know, because mantra and all of these, all of these spiritual tools, they're, they're tools for helping us to tap into that bigger energy so that we're not alone. So the, and mm-hmm. and that was the, the key I think the, to not feel mm-hmm. alone because we're you know we're not so whatever healing we do for ourselves I think if we can really deeply understand that we're doing it for not just the self but for the the web that's around us that that mm-hmm. in itself is a shift I think yes. Yes. Did you ever feel out of control of during this process? <laughs> I know it's a stupid question, but I thought I'd ask it just so you could talk it's about it. It's a great question because we have an obsession with control. And even, I mean, mm-hmm. people even co-opt spiritual um, technology to try to feel some sense of control. It's human. We, we're terrified of being out of control. At the same time, you know, again, I want to say that, you know, I think that our body is a lot smarter than we are. And when we try to (laughs) over control it, we actually mess things up. I think that, um, I I mean, in a way, there's a relaxation in going, you know, immune system, you know, so much better than I what you're supposed to do. I'm just going to try to get out of your way. So, I'll give you all the tools that you need that I know that I of of which I you know whatever I know because we there's a lot we don't yet know about this stuff, but you know you do the best you can and then you say okay, you take over, and that's sort of what I'm doing with with people in my studio. It's very similar to the thought process behind the Alexander technique, is you have to get out of your own way. You have to mm-hmm. recognize what are the, the things you get snagged on, whether there are emotions or stories or movement patterns or, um, you know, things like that. That's what that in a way we use those things to try to control, but they actually end up controlling us. And mm-hmm. so the leap of faith. And I've never said this, actually, I've never articulated it till now, Janine. So thank you for the opportunity. But I think, oh, you're quite welcome. The faith is in letting go our attempt to control because those ways that we use them are really dysfunctional and they end up controlling Mm -hmm. us, sort of like the the Mm -hmm. sorcerer's apprentice. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, uh, let me uh, tell you the uh, the 
the the visual that I had while you were talking, I had this this kind of vision of you dropping into backwards into a hammock. Mm, I like that. <laughs> it, it kind of the you yeah. know, it was just it was that symbol of of letting go. Mm of allowing it's like you know how a hammock when you when you fall into it it kind of surrounds yeah. you and the universe love you know god whatever um enveloping you and you just allowing yourself to let go yeah yeah that's a lovely image janine thanks and and i think you know it's hard it's hard to do that um also because mm -hmm. we you know this new age um or as what some person calls it new cage thought uh philosophy <laughs> i haven't heard that Do i you like, like that, that? Yes. It, because that's telling us you know i was right you remember the sheet that i wrote you um you know on one level we are we, we are responsible for ourselves and we have to take responsibility on the other hand mm -hmm. but we're not completely the authors of our lives simply because there are so many factors going in like there's infinite mm -hmm infinite factors that go into whether a person gets cancer or not. You know, I mean, I, I really like, I read so much about this because I was, I was sort of tormented by this idea that somehow I had caused this, but you know, the oldest um, sarcoma ever found on a fossil was on the leg of a dinosaur. Now, come on. Oh my goodness. The dinosaurs are freaking vegetarians. There was no wife, mm. right? Monsanto didn't exist. <laughs> and it probably didn't harbor resentment toward its parents. And it still got cancer. So, I mean, you know, I mean, who the hell knows? You're right. We don't have control over what comes to us. All we can do is control how we respond. Yeah. It's like how we respond to life, how we respond to the people and situations that come into our life. That's what defines us. Exactly. Yes. That's so true. Mm -hmm. So the idea of can we be both well and ill? Mm. <clears throat> That's a beautiful question. And I think, yes. Because again, if you see great souls, right, who have been through illnesses um, and yet give so much, um, you know, for some reason, I'm thinking about, you know, Jane Austen. And there's this big mystery mm -hmm. around her death. Did she die of arsenic poisoning or you know, whatever? Anyway, she died, she died fairly young. Mozart died mm -hmm. fairly young. I mean, there, mm -hmm. of course, can you lead a life that is whole, even in sickness, I believe you can. I'm, in fact, I know you can. And I think that, that the way that you do it is to just continue to, first of all, um, for personally speaking, no matter what, hopefully I will be, I will be trying to, I will be working on staying awake, even as I die. I would like to stay awake, even as I die. I would like to be aware. Um, when I was really sick with Crohn's, I, my life was pretty circumscribed and diminished because I, I had a lot of pain. And, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I didn't feel that I was really contributing much. In fact, I, I, often thought, I often thought about killing myself because I wondered, you know, what the hell kind of life is this? But I also, mm -hmm. you know, I was not where I am now. I, I don't know. 
you know, I'm not against that, by the way. I mean, when people are in dire straits and are dying. But, um, mm-hmm. but when, when you have a chronic illness and it takes a lot out of you, it is very, very difficult to feel that, um, that you are leading a full life or a whole life. And I don't really have an answer to that, actually. I'm just mm-hmm. thinking aloud. But it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful question. And I'm, I, I don't think that wellness is the only thing that should define us, frankly. Right, right. Well, how has, has this changed your, your sense of, of your immortality, of how you feel about death and dying? Mm. I'm, <clears throat> well, in this form, I'm certainly not immortal. You know, I was, right. I was privileged to be with my father when he took his last breath. And I was with him mm. for the last 24 hours of his life. And it was one of the most, oh, and I, you know, I had some issues with my dad. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> he was not an easy man. <laughs> but um, by some grace, in the last day of his life, it, there was such love. Talk about the invisible becoming apparent. And not because of anything I saw, but because of a felt presence of enormous love. I mean, mm. just a wellspring. And I was able to communicate with my father telepathically during this time that he was dying. So um, has it changed me? And certainly the cancer, has it changed me? Oh, God, yes. Of course it's changed me. Um, I physically, of course, um, when faced with a possibility of dying, I think that every cell in our body screams, no, because we're wired that way. We have a powerful, Mm -hmm. powerful urge to exist, to live, to survive. On another level, Mm -hmm. I have a fascination and a, a sort of a curiosity about about dying. Mm-hmm. Yes, I I understand that completely. Um, so do you do you feel that it has helped you to not fear? Do you fear death? Has it helped you to not fear death? Mm, I don't know how to answer that completely. In this moment, I would say to you, oh, right now, I I don't fear death. But in the moment that I was diagnosed with cancer, I was scared shitless. So I don't know that I can honestly say because I think it's going to depend on the circumstance. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that sometimes I'm afraid of death and sometimes I'm not. It depends. Mm -hmm. I think it's easy easy to not fear death when you're feeling good and spiritual and happy and easy to really fear death when things are not going so well and you're you feel fragile and afraid and you're you're really sick because honestly let's face it there are some ways of dying that I would just prefer not to have happen. Right, I agree. <laughs> For me, I honestly don't feel that I fear death. But I do, I don't want to suffer. Mm. You know, right. I'd like to go out gracefully. Yes. Well, <laughs> may that may that happen for you and me and all, all our loved ones. Yes. 
Yes. Yes, absolutely. So how has this year being ill and, and facing the possibility of dying, has that changed your connection to other people? And, mm. you know, your friends, family? Um, well, family is always the hardest, isn't it? But friends and friends and clients. Yes, no, of course, my family, my mother's turning 90 soon. And I'm deeply aware mm. of her, of, of her being, her days are numbered. And whether they're numbered mm -hmm. for another 10 years or, or 10 months, I don't know. But certainly, it, she's closer to the end than ever before. And I have, um, mm -hmm. I have some dear clients who are in their 90s whom I adore and have known for now 10 years and I think about that and I try to prepare myself um, I think that um, being closer to death hopefully has made me more tender towards death and towards people and towards our fragility because I think as I mean when I was younger that distance from it, that feeling of more invincibility, even though I, I got pretty not that got knocked out of me pretty early. <laughs> uh, but still, <clears throat> I don't know. I think it's a, it's a place that, um, that I revisit almost every day. Uh, I mean, I, I mm -hmm. live every day. There's not a day goes by when I don't think about dying. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. okay. That's not, it's not, I'm not sad or depressed about it. It's, it's a, it's a fact of life. We're not going to be here forever. So mm -hmm. it, with that knowledge, how much more precious is every moment and every person that you meet? That said, I am no saint, Janine, and I make mistakes <laughs> and I lose my temper and I, you know, I mean, come on, right? But at the same time, there's something really, um, yeah, there's something really tender about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Loving you, if you were sitting with someone who had recently been diagnosed with, it could be a cancer or, or some kind of a, a debilitating illness, right. what, would you, what would you say to them? I would say, first of all, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And this is really hard. At the same time, I would say, just remember, you're not dead yet. You're still here. Mm -hmm. And with every moment that you're still here, you are still living and alive and able to, um, to touch and be touched by that and to, to make choices towards beauty and to make choices towards connection and to make choices towards loving yourself and being tender to your for your to yourself and and others, and that that's actually the essence of of why we're here. So that's what I would say, and I would say, you know, um, the wholeness of a life is not measured by its length; it's measured by mm. its quality of love and awareness and and you know passion beauty curiosity all those things that that make us who we are are not attached to any external shape 
Mm-hmm. So to live close to that is what I would say. Stay, stay close to that awareness. That's beautiful. Thank you. I really like that. Is there anything else that you would like to add? I feel like we've had a wonderful oh, conversation. I here love talking with you. It's great. <laughs> you know, I just, I so appreciate the people that I have on. They're so authentic and, and honest and raw about who they are and what they've been through and how they feel. And, um, you know, I, I feel like it's, it's what, what better gift mm-hmm. to give other people to, to inspire other people to also be authentic and, and, and true to who they are and, and not to hide that and not to feel ashamed of that or, or scared. Yeah. Um, I, I love people's you know. stories too. And I, um, actually there's a wonderful book. I, I don't know if you've read it. It's called dying to be me. And, um, it's written by mm. a woman who, uh, was diagnosed with cancer. She was an Indian living in the Orient. And, um, and she was one of these people who had a miraculous, miraculous cure. I'm trying, I'm looking her up, uh, dying to be me, um, to be me, to give you the name, the, her name. Mm-hmm. The author? Yeah. The author, Anita Morjani, M-O-O-R-J-A-N-I. And I didn't actually come across this book until this past spring um, when I was feeling really depressed about the state of the world. And uh, a friend of mine said, you have to read this book. And it really, really inspired me. Um, yeah, I get Neat. so much inspiration from from other people's stories. I think this is what we can do for each other is to share that aspect of our journey and because everybody's journey is different and everybody's gonna Mm -hmm. um everybody's gonna do it a little differently and i say that's great i think the key is to find your journey right it's to find your Mm -hmm. expression of how it you know do it how it feels right to you and don't worry about anybody else i mean don't worry Mm -hmm. about like fulfilling anybody else's prescription for the right kind of life because you know you can really drive yourself crazy that way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. especially if you're trying to fulfill other people's expectations for you yes that's a whole other topic <laughs> <laughs> yes it is <laughs> wow well thank you so much lavinia this has been wonderful and i certainly hope that uh our listeners will get something from our conversation and pay it forward. And I will put that book, um, Dying to Be Me, uh, on the website. And um, you mentioned some other books that had really uh, influenced yeah. you. And I'll, I'll have you give me those and I'll I, put them on I the will. website. And too. I just want to say if anybody needs to, you know, reach out to me, if there's, you know, if there's any, anything I can do for anyone, you can always find me on Facebook. And that's Lavinia, L A V I N I A, Malioko, M A G L I O, double C as in cat O. And um, I'm, you know, happy to help if I can or to just share. So is that. Mm-hmm. Is that the best way for people to connect with you? Probably at this point, yeah. Facebook or, okay. you know, okay. or find me on my, and shoot me an email. Um, it's on my website. My website is 
www.epoise, that's E as in Edward, P as in Paul, O as in Oscar, I as in Italy, S as in Sam, E as in Edward, dot net. And my information is there as well. Okay. And all of that will also be on the Oh, website. sweet. You're so good. Yeah. Janine, thank you. Oh, no, I do my privilege. best. <laughs> thank you so much. It's a joy. Oh, thank you. It's been a joy. Thank you. Take, Take care. care. Bye. Lots of love. Lots of love to you, sweetie. Bye. That brings us to the end of our show. I hope you had some fun and learned something useful. Keeping It Real with Janine comes out every two weeks. Find our podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. There you can rate and review the show. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on a great conversation. Show notes can be found on our podcast website, www.realjanine.com. And remember, J-A-N-E-A-N, as well as links to my guest web pages. And you can also leave comments or questions and sign up for the Real Janine mail list to keep up on new episodes. Do you know a few people who would enjoy my conversation with Lavinia? Please share the love. I'd appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Take care and be well. everyone. After my conversation, my lovely conversation with Lavinia, she emailed me and said that she had an update that she would like to share with the listeners. So we thought we'd get together and record that. So here she is. Hey, Janine. So I just met with my gastroenterologist last week. To make a long story short, you know, we were talking for about half an hour and I was checking in with him and he said, you know, Lavinia, you've been 17 years since your last surgery, and you're doing amazingly well. He said, I, I tell my other patients about you. He says that there's this woman who does yoga and meditates and eats healthy. And he said, you know, you have done this with no Western drugs, and you should be really proud of yourself. And that made me feel so good. Um, mm. he, and he further said that he couldn't have guaranteed had I gone the Western drug route that I would have done this well. Wow. And that's something for an MD to say. For an MD to say, yeah, he's really, and, and you know, this is a gastroenterologist who I have to say, I give him credit for. He does not see uh, things as a, you know, one cure fits all. He mm -hmm. definitely understands that each of us is, is different. And I really appreciate him for that reason. So, um, yeah, that's it. That's all I wanted to say. And I feel really um, validated and uplifted, which is also good for my health. So, <laughs> Absolutely. And thank you so much for sharing that. I'm sure that it will have meaning for uh, a number of people. So thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. Thanks, Janine. Okay. Always a pleasure. Yeah, take care.